0: Last week we began a new sermon series going slowly through the Lord's Prayer. There are six requests or petitions that together make up the Lord's Prayer. We looked at the first last week, Hallowed Be Your Name, and today we're moving on to the second petition, Your Kingdom Come. As you can see on page 10 we've included the surrounding verses. But our second Bible reading today is just those three words. The first third of Matthew chapter 6, verse 10. Your kingdom come. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks God. Well, Let's bow our heads and pray for God's power to be at work among us. In Luke chapter 24, two of Jesus' disciples say to each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? We pray, Father, that their experience would be ours this morning. Would the scriptures be opened to us by the Spirit of Christ? And would our hearts burn within us Amen. When people have a place in the New York Marathon, they start living with their eyes fixed on that future event. They buy expensive sneakers and fitness wearables, and they enter into serious training. The day of the marathon is coming, and they want to be well prepared for that day. It's a future event that impacts present behavior. It's the same if you're moving out of your apartment. You know the day is approaching when you'll have to move all your things across the city to your new place while also cleaning the old apartment and patching up the holes in its walls. Moving day is coming. So you get to work preparing for that day in advance. It's a future event that impacts present behavior. That is how it is with the kingdom of God when we pray your kingdom come we're praying for something to happen we're telling God we want his kingdom to come as soon as possible and like an upcoming marathon or apartment move the arrival of God's kingdom is a future event that should impact present behavior those who pray for the kingdom to come also prepare For the kingdom to come. Those who pray for the kingdom to come, really praying for the kingdom to arrive, not just saying those three words out of habit. Those who sincerely pray for the kingdom to come should also prepare for its coming. The plan for the rest of the sermon is to go through the petition, Your kingdom come. Word by word, drawing out the significance of each of those three words, your kingdom come. Unpacking those three words will equip us for this task of preparing for God's kingdom so that we know what we're waiting for and how to get ready for it. We'll start with your, your kingdom come. In the time of Jesus, the Jewish people lived under the authority of the Roman Empire, The kingdom of Rome ruled over Israel. It had controlled Israel for nearly a 100 years. By the time Jesus prayed those words, your kingdom come. And the Jewish people were not happy with that state of affairs. They were troubled by that state of affairs. A few decades after the time of Jesus, there was a major Jewish uprising against Roman rule. But the Romans were just the latest in a sequence of foreign empires that had dominated Israel for most of the previous 600 years. Before the Romans, it was the Greeks. Before the Greeks, it was the Medes and Persians. And still further back, it was the Babylonians. So when Jesus prays to God the Father, your kingdom come, that first word, your, really packed a punch. The people listening to Jesus would have felt a shiver pass down their spines. They would have heard that prayer, your kingdom come, as an appeal to God to bring an end to the Roman occupation. They would have heard your kingdom come as a political prayer, a prayer for regime change. And there's a sense in which Jesus truly is challenging Rome when he prays, your kingdom come. The prophet Daniel had foreseen centuries beforehand, that God himself would set up a kingdom. Daniel predicted that four superpowers would dominate that region of the world, beginning with Babylon and ending with an unnamed fourth superpower that turned out to be Rome. In Daniel 2 verse 44, Daniel turns his attention to that fourth superpower, the kingdom of Rome, and he says in the time of those kings. The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. So Jesus is challenging Rome with that word, your. He's saying Rome's Rome's days are numbered. God's kingdom will take Rome's place. And Jesus is telling his followers to pray for that regime change to happen. Your kingdom come is a political prayer. It's a prayer for God's perfect rule to replace the often exploitative, often cruel, often abusive rule of earthly kingdoms. Like the kingdom of Rome. Your kingdom come is a political prayer. It's a prayer for God to take over politics forever. Now, Daniel was an accurate prophet. He was absolutely correct. God did set up a kingdom in the time of those Roman kings. It was set up when Jesus, God's chosen king, began gathering followers and demonstrating through his ministry what God's kingdom will be like. He healed everyone brought to him who was ill or paralyzed or in pain. That's what God's kingdom will be like. Freedom from all sickness. He drove out evil spirits. That's what God's kingdom will be like. Free from all evil. And he himself provided leadership. That's what God's kingdom will be like. It will be ruled by King Jesus who always upholds what is good and right and true. God's kingdom was set up when King Jesus arrived and began inviting everyone to join his kingdom. Come to me, Jesus says in Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. But elsewhere in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus compares the kingdom of heaven at that time to a tiny mustard seed. A mustard seed has a lot of growing to do before it ultimately becomes, in Jesus' words, the largest tree in the garden, larger than all the garden plants, he says. While that growing is happening, Jesus' followers need to pray, your kingdom come, because God's kingdom hasn't yet come in its fullness. The mustard plant is not yet fully grown. Regime change is underway, but it's not yet complete. That's the situation we are in now, here in New York City in 2021. The kingdom of God is underway, but it hasn't come in all its fullness. Part of preparing for the coming of God's kingdom is to think rightly about the existing power structures of this world. We mustn't look to earthly kingdoms to deliver what only God's kingdom will deliver when it comes in its fullness. Most Christians throughout the world will find the authorities ruling over them at best disappointing, at worst horribly oppressive. Occasionally, There are God-fearing leaders who truly seek the common good. We can celebrate when those leaders get elected and take office. Politicians can change our lives for the better. But let's not get overexcited when our choice of politician gets into office. And let's not get over-demoralized when our choice of politician loses power. We need to manage our expectations. That's part of what it means to prepare for God's kingdom. It is spiritually immature to get overexcited or over-demoralized by earthly politics. No earthly regime can deliver what God's kingdom will deliver when it comes in its fullness. That's why we pray, your kingdom come. Let's move on now to the second word in Jesus' three-word prayer and the second part of the sermon. Kingdom. Kingdom. That's our second heading, Kingdom. We're in Matthew's Gospel. And Jesus has a lot to say in Matthew's Gospel about the Kingdom of God. There are three features of the Kingdom that we particularly need to grasp. The first feature is the Kingdom's entry requirement. Unlike any earthly Kingdom, the Kingdom of God has a spiritual entry requirement. If I apply At some point, to be a U.S. citizen, I'll have to take a citizenship test. But that test won't examine my heart. There'll be questions about U.S. history and the U.S. Constitution. There won't be questions about my spiritual life. But it's different with the kingdom of God. In the next chapter of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, Will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. That means the people who enter God's kingdom are those who do his will. We need to be clear. The Bible says we are not saved by obedience, we're saved by Jesus as we trust in his life, death, and resurrection. But we are saved for obedience, for doing the will of the Father who is in heaven. And so you can't enter into God's kingdom while holding on to a sinful way of life. We all sin. All of God's saved people keep falling short. That's why we have a time of confession every week in our service. But the people in God's kingdom fight against sin with his powerful help. That's the mindset we adopt when we enter God's kingdom. And thanks be to God, we do know what it is to overcome rebellious desires and do the will of our Father who is in heaven. Later in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus returns to the spiritual entry requirement of the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew 18, Jesus says, Unless you turn around and become like young children, you will never enter. Enter the kingdom of heaven. Putting God in charge of your life calls for childlikeness. The people who enter God's kingdom have a childlike dependence on God. In case his disciples haven't got that memo, Jesus goes on to say, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. The kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. It belongs to people who consider themselves children with a heavenly father. Perhaps there's someone listening here at church today or listening to our live stream who is going through a teenage phase, spiritually speaking. You've been behaving rebelliously towards your heavenly father. Not all teenagers are rebellious, but sometimes they are. If you've been one of those rebellious teenagers, spiritually speaking, turn around and become like a child in God's presence. Seek his help in doing his will. That's part of preparing for the kingdom to come. God's kingdom has a spiritual entry requirement. The second feature of the kingdom of God that we need to grasp is its territorial footprint. Earthly nations have a place on the map that they call home. It might be enormous, like America or Brazil, or small but perfectly formed, like Britain. But there's nowhere on the map that you can point to and say, that's the kingdom of heaven, there it is, that's where God's people live. It has no territorial footprint. Instead, the citizens of God's kingdom live scattered among the earthly kingdoms. We have a a globe in our apartment and I could point at any nation on that globe and say, there are Christians in that nation. I think I could do that confidently. There are Christians in that nation, that nation, that nation, that nation, that nation. What I can't do is find a patch on our globe and say, look, there's kingdom land. There's the kingdom of God. Can't do it. It doesn't have that kind of territorial footprint. In Jesus' parable of the weeds, which he tells in Matthew 13, the sons of the kingdom, meaning kingdom people, are pictured as wheat in a field and people who don't belong to God's kingdom are pictured as weeds. That's obviously not flattering, if you are listening as someone who isn't a Christian. The Bible is clear that God's desire is for all people to be saved. His desire is for weeds to become wheat. From the Bible's point of view, those outside God's kingdom are lost, but they're not lost causes. God invites all people to enter his kingdom. It's only when someone dies that they're no longer invited to enter the kingdom of heaven. Back to the parable of the weeds. The point of the parable is that both kinds of plant, the wheat and the weeds, grow alongside each other until the harvest comes. And that gives us a picture of how the kingdom of heaven exists in this world people who belong to the kingdom live alongside people who don't like the wheat and the weeds in the parable. There's an intermingling. One way to illustrate this intermingling is to turn to the world of Harry Potter, where people with magical powers live among ordinary people who are known as muggles. The Harry Potter books don't have maps of an imaginary world printed on the inside cover like other fantasy books because the Harry Potter books are set in this world. The magical characters don't have their own nation. They live in Muggle nations. They live in the same familiar world as ordinary humans. It's like that with the citizens of God's kingdom. We are different to non-Christians as a result of God's grace the Spirit of God dwells within us. We're different. We can't fly on broomsticks, but we are spiritually different to the non-Christians we live among. There's an intermingling that is rather like the intermingling in the Harry Potter series. But it needs to be said that God's kingdom people are happy to identify ourselves to the non-kingdom people we live among, unlike the secretive witches and wizards of the Harry Potter books who keep themselves to themselves. In fact, Christians are encouraged to stand out like stars shining in the universe. That's the kind of visibility we should aspire to have. We should long for the non-kingdom people we live among to hear God's invitation to join his kingdom and to say, yes, count me in. We prepare for the kingdom of God by making the most of our intermingled situation in this world. I once had a wise pastor who used to tell the young people in the church, don't become a lighthouse keeper. He used to say, becoming a lighthouse keeper, it's just a terrible job for a Christian. His point was that getting a job that isolates you from non-Christians is a wasted opportunity living among non-christians interacting with them regularly is how the good news of the kingdom of god spreads to those who haven't yet heard it we're still in the second part of the sermon with the heading kingdom and we're thinking about three key features of god's kingdom we've looked at its entry requirement and its territorial footprint The third feature to consider is its administrative system. Its administrative system. Most nations have embassies that represent their interests in other countries. There are 176 embassies in Washington, D.C., representing almost all the world's nations. North Korea and Iran are two of the nations that do not have an embassy In Washington, D.C., the Kingdom of Heaven has an embassy in Washington, D.C. In fact, it has many embassies in D.C. because faithful local churches are embassies of the Kingdom of God, and there are many faithful local churches in Washington. Any faithful local church is an embassy of God's kingdom. Jesus Christ rules over his kingdom through local churches they're his embassies they're outposts of heaven in this world in Matthew 16 Jesus says to Peter you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven with those words Jesus delegates kingdom power to Peter, power to be used in the building of the church. And that wasn't a one time only thing, because a couple of chapters later, the same kingdom power is extended to every faithful church. In Matthew 18, Jesus is talking about the regular local church, and he says the same thing he earlier said to Peter. He says, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth, shall be loosed in heaven. The only difference between that quote and the earlier one is that the yous are your's. They're you plurals. In the second quote, the later quote about the local church. So local churches are embassies of the kingdom of heaven exercising real kingdom authority delegated by the king himself. Here's how the ESV study Bible explains it. Jesus delegates authority to human leaders in the church who are called to govern his church on earth under his ultimate authority through the application of his word, End quote. How does this work out in practice? Well, let me give you an example from our own church, Good Shepherd, A couple of years ago, there was a man in our church. I'm not going to uh, say his name now or later. Uh, There was a man in our church. He doesn't belong to it anymore. And he was divisive. I took him out to lunch one week and uh, I showed him Titus 3 verse 10, which says, warn a divisive person once and then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with him. I looked the man in the eye and said to him this is your first warning in other words if he was divisive again he would get a second warning and if he was divisive for a third time we would have nothing to do with him he would be excluded from the church excommunicated now sadly because we we loved him dearly that man chose to leave the church but Imagine he had stayed and he had been divisive for a second and then a third time. At that point, he would have been excluded from the church. And assuming that we had acted faithfully, assuming that we had got all of that right along the way, assuming he really had been divisive, then our action of setting him loose from the church would also have set him loose from the kingdom of heaven. Remember those words of Jesus, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now that case study probably raises lots of questions in your mind and I I hope you won't be distracted by those questions. The big point here is that King Jesus exercises authority over his kingdom through local churches, through local churches that faithfully apply his word. Roughly speaking, generally speaking, if you're in a faithful local church, you're in the kingdom of heaven. And if that church tells you you're out, then you're out of the kingdom of heaven and you need to repent so that you can get back in. Jesus exercises authority over his kingdom through local churches. We have a responsibility to use the power he has delegated to us faithfully. From the point of view of a congregation member, Faithfully belonging to a faithful local church brings assurance that you belong in the kingdom of heaven. You belong to God's kingdom. I said at the start of the sermon that those who pray for the kingdom to come should prepare for the kingdom to come, and eager involvement in the local church is part of the preparation. We've just been thinking about the assurance that comes from involvement in the local church. That's one kind of preparation. But involvement in the local church also helps to extend the frontiers of God's kingdom because a faithful local church will regularly proclaim the gospel. The gospel is an invitation to those outside the kingdom to come in. And that is vitally important preparation work for the time when the kingdom comes in its fullness. There's another way in which local church involvement is preparation for the coming kingdom. When the kingdom comes in its fullness, all these scattered faithful churches will be gathered together as one. Getting involved with a healthy local church will give you a foretaste of eternity not just through the weekly Sunday service, but also through the shared experience of community with other believers as we share one another's lives through the weeks and months and years. That community experience, sometimes known as the fellowship of the saints, is good preparation for the coming kingdom when the scattered embassies of God's kingdom will group together as one forever. So if you can when we're having lunch after church stay for that lunch give our community group a try it's not meeting not it's not meeting this wednesday but it usually meets on wednesday evenings and it's a wonderful way to get to know your fellow church members your fellow kingdom members coffees lunches social get-togethers there are many ways in which we can give ourselves to this community and prepare for the coming of the kingdom by gaining that foretaste of eternity through the fellowship of the saints. It's time for our third heading, the third word of Jesus' three-word petition, come. We'll spend uh, less time on this third word than the middle word. As we've been hearing throughout the sermon, God's kingdom hasn't yet come in its fullness. That won't happen until the king himself comes down from heaven again. God's king has already come down to earth once. After King Jesus' death and resurrection, he ascended into heaven where he waits while the message of his kingdom is proclaimed throughout the world and then he will come again. And when he returns, he will stay with his people forever. In Matthew 24, Jesus deals with the question of when he will return. When the kingdom of God will come in all its fullness. He says, no one knows about that day or hour. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know On what day your Lord will come? Later he says, "You must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. You must be ready." Many people around the world pray, "Your kingdom come," who are not ready for the kingdom to come. They're not ready for Jesus to return. They're not following him. They're not doing the will of Jesus' Father in heaven by the power of his Spirit, they're praying for the kingdom to come without being prepared for the kingdom to come. We need to pray this prayer sincerely. We need to be ready for God's kingdom to come at any time. When Jesus returns, he will lovingly gather his scattered people and rule over them forever in a world without any sickness or any evil. It will be an eternal day of overflowing joy for his people. But the day when Jesus returns is also the day when he will judge those outside his kingdom. We don't know when that day will come, but you must get ready for it so that you will be in Jesus perfect kingdom instead of being outside forever if you're listening as someone who's not yet following jesus please meditate on those three words your kingdom come what's stopping you from saying those words from the heart with faith your kingdom come eternal life with jesus will be so good and he wants you to be with him In his kingdom, he invites you to join in if you're not yet in it. He went to his death on the cross so that you could come in. None of us deserve to join in with God's perfect kingdom. And so Jesus had to die in our place, receiving God's punishment for other people's sins. So that we could be forgiven and qualify for kingdom membership. He gave his life so that you could come in to his kingdom. Please say yes to his invitation if you haven't already. Say it today. Say yes to his invitation. Those of us who are following Jesus need to stay ready for his return. This short request, your kingdom come, is a kind of diagnostic tool. It allows us to examine our hearts. If we find that we can't pray it sincerely because we're overly invested in this current world and we don't really want Jesus to come, at least not yet, at least not for several years, a decade, or no, alarm bells should start ringing if we can't pray for the kingdom to come as soon as possible. Alarm bells should ring. We ought to be able to pray your kingdom come and really mean it because we want King Jesus to return today. Praying your kingdom come is the same as praying come Lord Jesus as soon as possible, even today. And so if you find it hard to pray those three words, if they catch in your throat as it were, then ask God to work in your heart and refresh your vision of the glory to come. Those who pray for the kingdom to come should prepare for the kingdom to come. And that heart work, is part of our preparation. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we pray that you would refresh our vision of the coming kingdom. We thank you for the kingdom benefits that we currently enjoy in this world but we know they will be far surpassed when we live with Jesus himself in his perfect kingdom forever. Help us to meditate on that future so that we look forward to it, so that we can pray with full sincerity, your kingdom come. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to prepare for the coming of the kingdom by seeking to extend its frontiers, its spiritual frontiers in this world. Give us opportunities to share the good news of the kingdom of God with those who haven't yet accepted your invitation. And we pray that you would use us as a church and individually to win others to your kingdom. For Jesus' sake, amen.